Good morning, everybody. Very nice to be with you here to open God's Word and to read it this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Judges chapter 5, where we will continue our marching with the Israelites through the Promised Land. I'm going to read all of chapter 5 in its entirety. I ask that you would follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Please hear now God's word. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, uh, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, they marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, marched on, march on, O my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Merah, says the angel of the Lord, curse its habitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. 
She brought him curds and a noble's bow. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera railed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princes answered. Indeed, she answered herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of, divide, of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you because you do love your people. We give thanks, Father, that we are counted among that number, and so we do relish, Father, that you love us. We do pray, Father, that you would encourage your hearts, uh, uh, encourage our hearts through your word today. We pray that you would bless us in hearing it and in obeying it. And we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time that I was here in Judges, we examined uh, chapter 4, where we saw Deborah, who was a prophetess in Israel, give a command that Barak was supposed to lead out the armies of Israel against their oppressors. They were being oppressed by one of the kings of northern Palestine named Jabin, and he had a general named Sisera, and Barak led the army of Israel out and defeated them. He defeated Jabin's army, his general Sisera, and their 900 chariots, and Sisera suffered a dishonorable death, killed in a gruesome way by a woman named Jael. And so in chapter 5, there's a memorial song to God by Deborah and Barak celebrating the victory that they had in chapter 4. They recount the fact that Israel fought the enemy, but they did not fight alone because it says in that chapter that the Lord was the one who led them into battle. He sort of led the charge in front of his people, but it does not tell us in chapter 4 exactly how the Lord gave them the victory, and it does in this chapter. There are simply few details in either one of these chapters about the Lord's action, and this was the key ingredient to their victory because Israel, since the time that they had entered into the promised land, had never been able to defeat an enemy who had chariots, and so it's of some interest to us that they were able to do so on this occasion. And we see something of the means of the Lord's victory in verses 4 and 5, and then further in verses 20 and 21. The Bible tells us in these verses that creation in some way fought to help the people of God. It says in verse 4 that the clouds dropped water, and then in verse 5, the ESV said the mountains quaked before the Lord. And this word quaked is probably better transformed uh, translated flowed out or gushed before the Lord like the King, New King James Version says. And then in verse 20 it says that the stars fought for the Lord's people against Sisera 
and verse 21 records that the torrent of the Kishon River swept away the Canaanites. What all this points to is just at the time that the battle was going on, it began to rain. And the Canaanite army was swept away in some way by the rising Kishon or Kishon rain. And exactly why the charioteers would be able to uh, be swept away by a river, you have to remember that the Israelites were up on the top of Mount Tabor and the Kishon River was before them, and the Canaanites had the, back, had the river at their back before the charge. And at the very moment that they began to prepare for battle, when the Israelites were running down the mountain, there was a heavy rainstorm that occurred, and a great mire that occurred and uh, caused the chariots to become stuck in the mud. And so the Canaanites would have been easy prey for the Israelites as they ran toward them. The chariots would have been unmaneuverable and so stuck in the mud, uh, they would either have uh, left their chariots and ran back towards the river or they would have, if they were able to, turned the chariots around and moved back towards the river. And as they did so, the Kaishan River normally was not very deep, but on this occasion, apparently, it became very deep and very swift and it swept away those Canaanites that were trying to flee away from the rising current. So we see how God overcomes the problems that his people face. And on this particular occasion, the problem that the Israelites faced was the Canaanites' superior technology. But the Lord countered the enemy's greater ability where it was vulnerable and brought their strength to nothing. And he does so for his people today. He does not command us to go out and fight physical warfare with other people. But uh, our enemies, uh, instead of the Canaanites, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these enemies all have power over us in our natural uh, condition in one form or another. The world's power is particularly visible to us when we as Christians are persecuted by us. Uh, For example, in our country, the liberal media blasts with contempt so-called radical fundamentalists, meaning us at every opportunity in an effort to discount us and turn public opinion against us. We see an example of this a few years back where Mel Gibson was making the movie The Passion about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The media uh, blasted Gibson for the making of this movie, talking about how primitive it was, how racist it was, how divisive it was going to be for our country. And they spread this over television, over the radio, and their power is uh, very powerful because it comes into every American home through their televisions and radios. However, their pressure on Mel Gibson backfired on them because instead of canceling the movie about the Lord Jesus Christ, it actually promoted the movie about his death, uh, causing people to have more interest in it than they normally would have otherwise. And so it's now become one of the highest grossing box office products that was ever made. And so it seems that the Lord played a trick on the media moguls, nullifying their strength, which is influence over public opinion. And he used the same power to give success to the very thing that they thought to stop. 
And so the Lord does for us the same things today, and we should not be discouraged by such intimidation and threats by those who hate us. They may have success against the church for a season, but every now and then the Lord makes known that he fights for his children as he did on that particular occasion, just as he did for the Israelites. And thereby he reminds the world and us who really has the influence and power in the world's events. Well, even though this song is one of praise, the largest portion of it recounts the willingness or the lack thereof of God's people to participate. It says the state of affairs before the victory are recounted in verses 6 through 8. Before Deborah's time, the Israelites had to take the byways to conduct their business and other affairs. And by byways, it means the back roads. They had to stay off the main roads because it was possible for them to be assaulted by the Canaanites, to be robbed by them, and perhaps even killed by them. It further says that basically village life or community life in their towns basically ceased because everybody was afraid to gather with their neighbor. But the problem for them was not primarily Sisera and Jabin. They were not the root cause of Israel's problems, but God's people chose new gods according to verse 8. So they forsook the Lord for the idols of their neighbors like the Israelites had done back in the previous chapters. And as a result, the Lord sent war and defeat to their cities and their villages. It says that there was not a shield or a spear to be found among them. And so Israel had little of the implements of war with which to defend herself and was at the mercy of tyranny. But there were those amongst the Israelites who were willing to do something about their uh, problem. According to verses 14 through 15 and 18, some like Ephraim and Machir, who was representing the tribe of Manasseh, Benjamin, Zebulun, and Issachar helped Barak and participated in the fighting against the Canaanites. They heeded God's call to battle and put their necks on the line for their faithfulness. However, there were also those that were unfaithful amongst God's people. Uh, The latter half of verse 15 begins with Reuben who had great searchings of heart. And at first glance, this appears like, well, Reuben was sitting back and counting the responsibilities that they had and then they were going to determine to charge out and help God's people. But then verse 16 shows that they stayed among the sheepfolds So their great resolve was not to go out and help with the battle, but it was to stay home and protect their own property. They were not alone in this attitude. It says also that Gilead joined them in their indifference. Gilead was that region of the Israelites that was across the Jordan River on the east side. It was occupied by the tribes of Reuben, and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And perhaps they were apathetic because of their geographic separation from the other tribes of Israel. And they said, well, you know, we're on this side of the river and their problems really don't affect us. And so why should we go over there and help them? Verse 17 also tells us that Dan remained on or with the ships at the seashore and Asher 
remained by the seashore in western Israel as well, away from the scene of the fighting. And both of these descriptions associated with the seaports reflect the fact that they were concerned about the uh, sea business that they did, probably with Phoenician traders, possibly also with the Canaanites. And they said to themselves, basically, if we participate in this battle, we might not be able to uh, have an economic future in this part of the country. And so we better just sort of drop out and not help. And then last but not least, in verse 23, there was a place called Meroz. There is, this is the only place in the Bible where this word is used, and scholars believe that this was probably an Israelite village that was very close to the battlefield. Uh, and it was cursed for not coming to the help of the Lord. And it, probably their sin was that they were the closest and did not participate in the battle, nor did they flee after the Canaanites when they fled from the battle, or they did not help the other Israelites who were doing these things. And one of the things we noticed that, about this is Meraz received a curse for their lack of participation in these things, but the other Israelites that did not uh, participate in the battle, they don't receive a curse, they just receive a slight rebuke. And so why does Miraz get a greater censure than these other Israelites? Probably because of their geographic location. They were right there in the immediate vicinity of the battlefield, whereas the other Israelites had to travel a pretty good distance to get there, or they had to travel across the Jordan River to be able to participate in the battle. And so the people of Miraz weren't just letting their fellow countrymen down because since their countrymen were obeying the Lord's command, the refusal of Miraz to support the effort was a refusal to help God. And so because of their lukewarm attitude, the Merizites were struck by God's curse. And as I said earlier, they're never mentioned again on the pages of Scripture. Well, the unwillingness on the part of God's people to serve in his kingdom that's not uh, something that passed away back with the battle with the Canaanites, it still goes on today. The church has a, a substantial number of people who are not involved in any way in the service or ministry of the church. And I've observed in churches usually that 100% of the work in the church is done by 20 to 30% of the people and the rest are just sort of tagging along for the ride, perfectly content to sit by and let other people shoulder all of the service. I know that in some cases there are good reasons for the lack of activity. Some people are sick. Some people have physical disability and are not able to. Perhaps there's some other reason. They have small children at home that they have to take care of and are not willing to participate. But I'm afraid for many of us that that is not the case. So we should be those that uh, receive the Lord's blessing for the participation that we give to the Lord. For he says to those that do not participate in his work, as he does in Matthew chapter 25, to those in the parable of the talents, you wicked and lazy servant, why did you not share in the labor with my other servants? Your faith in me is worthless since it did not result in genuine service. Instead, we want to be the other people in the same chapter 
that on judgment day we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. That will be true of all of God's people in one way or another. The last part of this chapter presents a portrait of two women who are either directly involved or affected by this battle. Although Meraz did not help in the pursuit of the Lord's enemies, Jael, the wife of a Kenite, did. The Kenites were not blood-related to the Israelites. Moses had married one of the women of the family of the Kenites, and the Kenites had joined the Israelites on the Exodus and had come into the Promised Land with them. And it tells us in chapter 1 that they had settled in the south of Canaan during, uh, or amongst the people of Judah. Uh, however, in Judges chapter three, uh, 4, Joel's husband Heber separated himself from their family and settled in the northeastern part of Canaan to the east of Mount Tabor. Heber and the Canaanite king Jabin were on peaceful terms with one another and Probably because of this, Sethra either knew him and his wife, Jael, or he knew of their relationship with uh, Jabin. And so he thought that he had good reason to, uh, that Heber and his wife would give him support and comfort and safety as he fled from the battlefield. And after the battle, when Jael saw uh, Sisera fleeing from the battle, she took the initiative and invited him into her tent according to Judges chapter 4, verse 18. She said that he had nothing to fear and treated Cicero with kind hospitality. But after he fell asleep, she took a tent peg and drove it through his head, and he died. There are a couple of points about this that uh, we might be surprised about. First, her deed required strength that we might not normally associate with a woman, but back during that time amongst tent-dwelling peoples, women were expected to set up the tents, including driving the peg. So it was not unusual that Jael had strength to be able to do this. And we might also be surprised and even repulsed that she killed Sisera in such a brutal and deceptive fashion. As for her brutality, the Lord had commanded his people to wipe out his enemies in the land of Canaan. So she was simply following the Lord's command at that point. And as to her deception, it's the same as I said with Ehud in a previous sermon. The Lord's people don't always do the Lord's work in the best possible way, but the Lord can still use their imperfect deeds to accomplish his perfect plan. That's not an excuse, by the way, not to do the Lord's work, the Lord's way. We should do that. We should learn from their example of how not to do it. But the scriptures do not leave us in doubt as to how we should evaluate Jael's deed because since she risked everything to execute the general of the opposing army, God's blessing is one of the greatest that uh, comes upon her and we should imitate her example, not in killing other people, but in her courage and her resourcefulness and her zeal. And as I said in verse 24, she is praised with one of the greatest pronouncements of blessing uttered in the Bible. And so clearly Jael represents those who have taken their stand on God's side, while in contrast, the Israelite tribes 
that did not do so, and particularly Merari's represents those Israelites who unintentionally support the Canaanites, God's enemies. And so in spite of the behavior that might surprise us, we should not hesitate to accept that she was one who was smiled upon with God's favor. The second portrait is the pitiful scene of Sisera's mother anxiously waiting for her son to return from the battle. And I think all of us would be touched by her example, able to sympathize with her, that she was concerned about her son. However, notice that her companions try to console her. They remind her how just as on previous occasions, he was delayed because he and his troops were collecting their booty. In verse 30, this included the women of the Israelite troops that they had just massacred. And this indicates that Sisera and his soldiers were accustomed to indulging in the violation of the women of their vanquished foes right after the battle. And Sisera's mother consoles herself that this was their practice. Uh, One would have thought that this mature woman would have been more sensitive to the vulnerability of other women in the violent world of male uh, warfare. So neither she nor her son Sisera are innocent victims for which we should have sympathy. They have simply received the consequences of the very practices that they have used on others time and again. But Deborah and Barak did not write this poem to vindictively and maliciously delight in the fortunes of anguish and anguish of others. Instead, they developed this tribute to the Lord out of a sacred love and zeal for him, his people, and his purposes. We see this in verse 31 where she closes the final prayer that all of God's enemies should end up like Sisera, but all those who love the Lord should shine forth brilliantly in glory, triumphant over God's foes. They believed in, that is Deborah and Barak, they believed in and loved the Lord of Israel and his purposes, and so should we, because this entire account is constructed so that we can see that the Lord is the one who is giving success to his people. He is the one who is giving commands for his people to go out and do the things that he has commanded them to do. In this particular case, he is the one that is controlling nature, raising up generals and armies and effecting effecting victory. So this passage encourages us to perceive God's sovereignty over history, including over our own lives as well. So whether it's in chastening, in his compassionate deliverance, in his financial provision, or in leading and providing wisdom, God is sovereign over all aspects of their lives and our lives. And through this, he shows what a wonderful Savior God who works all things for good for those that love him and who are called according to his purposes And not only did he did so for the temporal oppression that the Israelites were involved in, he is also a wonderful Savior for us today uh, with regard to eternity. He has sent his son Jesus into this world to bring salvation to mankind. And he died on the cross to save his people from their sins. And he tells us that through faith in him, we can have salvation, not by our own works, but because of the works that Jesus did for us. 
paying the penalty for our sins on the cross of Calvary and accomplishing a righteousness by keeping God's law perfectly, which is accounted to us even though we are not righteous, but receive through faith in him. And so I urge you today, if you've never come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before, I ask you to exercise that faith today. Speak with one of the officers of the church, one of the elders of the church. They're in the bulletin that you have. You can seek them out and ask them further about this salvation. I ask that you would do so today. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the great salvation that you gave to your people some thousand years ago. I thank you even more, Father, for the great salvation that you are still giving to your people. I thank you that you have blessed uh, us today with saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, for sending him into this world to pay the penalty for our sins. We pray, Father, that as we go forth this week that you would encourage us with the events of your word. Help us that we might draw a little more closely to you because of it and live a little more willingly obeying your commands. And I ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name.